Uh, we are beginning to look forward to Christmas. I know some of you think it's wrong to sing Christmas songs too early. Well, you're wrong. I'm sorry, okay? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. You don't have to sing yet, but go ahead and grab one of these Christmas devotionals. Uh, it's the Advent devotional. Advent is a kind of a traditional word that a lot of churches use to talk about stretching Christmas out as long as possible, okay? Um, Advent literally means the arrival of an important person or event. That's what Advent means. It's like something is coming, right? And so we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. God has come and dwelt among us in Christ. So we're celebrating the incarnation at Christmas time. It's a fantastic time to connect with your pagan friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus, but they like Christmas, right? Like we've got something in common. There's a bridge to build here. And so these Advent devotionals will help get your mind on Christmas and on Christ being born. Uh, so it divides up different themes. We look at hope love, joy, peace, different weeks of December. So we'll start the devotional. If you want to read along on the devotional, you can grab this. There's different Bible readings and stuff. You can start that the Thanksgiving week, so not today, but next Sunday. Um, And then we've got extra coloring pages, right? So some of you, there's like four singles in one house. Get one devotional to read together and then get the four coloring sheets so you have your own coloring sheets, okay? Or if you have kids, kids like the coloring sheets as well. Um, So we've got different coloring sheets. We've got devotional readings. Grab those. Um, And like I said, the goal is that as we do Christmas in Colleen, we would help our friends and neighbors see the hope that we have in Christ, Um, and we would celebrate. It's a fun time. All right, we're going to begin looking at the scriptures together now. So if you have a Bible, grab your Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 48. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some under the chairs. Grab one of those black Bibles. We're, I think, around page 36 in the black Bibles. We're, We're in that area but it's chapter 48 of Genesis. This series, we're calling it The Joseph Stories. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So when we open this book up every week, we're we're getting a picture of who Jesus is. In the Old Testament, it's foreshadowing and kind of hinting at what is to come. New Testament's looking back on what Jesus has already accomplished. So here in these stories in Genesis, we're seeing God's purposes in a dysfunctional world. Um, Joseph was abused. He was betrayed. He was hurt, just like you and I have been, but he knew that God was with him, and he's seeing God's purposes unfold. We're kind of at the end of the story now. We've just got a couple more weeks today and next week before we start looking at Christmas passages. And so uh, what we're looking at now is Jacob has been reunited with his son Joseph, and that's kind of the key subject of the story today. So we're calling it Passing on Grace, Passing Grace on grace. Uh, I had a friend that went to the doctor a few years ago. It was actually in 2013. He was going in for an eye check. Went to see, uh, what do you call that? Op- that, op- yeah, that thing. So he went in to see the eye doctor and he was actually having a good time talking with this eye doctor because my friend was a pastor and the eye doctor was like, hey, today is the anniversary of when I first believed in Jesus at your church 20 years ago. And so they were talking about that. They were kind of celebrating. That's so cool. What an honor to get to like see you today. This is a really beautiful and good thing. And then they go on about their business. He's doing the eye check. Um, He's kind of puzzled by some of the readings, the scans that he's got. So he goes out and uh, checks and double checks some things. Um, And he comes back in in tears because he realizes that my friend, the pastor, has ocular melanoma. Um, They find out with more testing that it's a stage four cancer, and it's one of the most aggressive kinds of cancer that you can have. And and so my friend, the the pastor, was told that he probably only has six months to live. Um, And that 
that focused him in a way that, that only a death sentence can, right? That made him think, how, how am I going to use the time I've got left? How am I going to use whatever time I've got? Now, God was gracious to my friend, um, and he had several years. He had about five and a half years. He just passed away a couple of months ago. He's the pastor of, of the church and temple that, that started this church. Um, so he, God gave him many more years, and he was a great example of, of dying well, of dying faithfully. But when he got that news that he had cancer, maybe only six months, maybe longer, he had to say, how am I going to pass on the heritage that I've been given? How am I going to pass on the grace that God has given to me? And I believe the story that we're going to see in the Genesis chapter 48, Jacob's life, is showing us the same thing. Jacob is dying, and Jacob does some peculiar things, things that don't really make a lot of sense on a first reading because it's the ancient Middle East and they have different traditions, right? But, but what we're going to see is all these things that Jacob does that might seem culturally strange to us, they're different mechanisms, they're different procedures by which he's trying to pass on the grace that God has shown to him. Now, I probably should define grace real quickly, right? What is grace? Grace is God's goodness that we don't deserve. Grace means that God deals with you in a way that's better than you deserve, God shows you forgiveness when you deserve judgment. And so Jacob knew that this is who God is, that God had shown him grace, and Jacob is now going to pass on that grace to others. And his impending death focused him, right? Helped him see, okay, I got I to gotta do some things. I'm about to die. Now, this has a broader application because I know a lot of you in your 20s just kind of checked out, right? You're like, oh, this is a sermon for old people. I have bad news. Those of you in your 20s, you're also dying, Okay been around the church very many years. You've heard me say this, we're all dying, okay? We're all just dying at different speeds. So some of you are dying more quickly than others. Some of you got one foot in the grave. Some of you think it's never going to happen, but, but you're all dying. We're all dying, and we all need to make the most of the time that God has given us, and we don't really know how many days we're going to have. So Jacob is a great example for us of someone who, by faith, is trusting in God. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith, Jacob blessed his grandsons. That's what he's doing. He's acting in faith in God's grace as he passes on this grace. So let's read chapter 48. I want to start us with just verses one through four, and then we'll kind of go back and look at some stuff before that and after that. But let's start with chapter 48, verses one through four. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, that's Jacob's other name, then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So the last thing he's doing, he's on his deathbed. He props himself. He can barely sit up. And he's like, God has appeared to me. God has shown grace to me. And I want to pass this on to you. I want to share what God has revealed to me. I'm going to pray that our time in the word would help us to, to do the same thing, that we'd make the most of the time we've got. I don't know how many days you've got left. I don't know how many days I've got left, but I want to make the most of the time. I want to enjoy the grace that God has given me and share that grace with other people. So let's pray and ask God to help us with that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We pray that we would be a people that receive it, that enjoy the gift of your kindness to us in Christ. 
We deserve judgment and you have given us forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead. God, we pray also that that would drive us to share it, to pass it on. We're going to see some strange cultural examples here, things that seem distant to us, but but we see a beautiful example of sharing what we've been given. So help us to do that. Help us to pass on the grace you've given to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the story and and different ways that Jacob passes on the grace, I want to look at three different ways that he does this. One is passing on grace at the graveside. He has some, some graveside burial instructions for Joseph he's going to give. That's at the end of 47. We haven't read that yet. I'll go back and read that. So we've got some kind of graveside instructions, passing on grace at the graveside. Then we've also got the idea of passing on grace by sharing the story. He's going to share his story of what God's done in his life. That's another thing that we can imitate. We can share our story. And then finally, we're going to have grace through the blessing. He passes on grace through the blessing. And this is a little more than the just, you know, God bless you when you sneeze or bless your heart thing that Southerners say, right? This is a little more, this is like a formal kind of tribal um, way of interacting where they're passing on legal rights to people. Um, so we've got grace coming through a graveside instruction. We've got him sharing his story. And then finally, uh, his blessing that he gives. So first of all, we're going to back up just a few verses to the end of chapter 47. Um, it's kind of an awkward section. Uh, it's chapter 47 and it's verses 27 through 31. So we didn't read this last week, but we're coming to it now because it kind of goes together with the final deathbed vibe that, that's going on here with Jacob. So verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. I don't know if you remember last week, we talked about how that's God's blessing to humanity. Humanity's job, our job, is to reflect God's goodness in the world and to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion, right? To go be human, (laughs) to go be human in the best sense of the word, loving people, standing for justice, caring for others, building cities, building culture, making art. We're to do all that to the glory of God. And I talked about last week how the only way we can really do that right is when we have a personal faith relationship with God, right? So the, the New Testament commands of the Great Commission, become a disciple of Jesus, empower those Old Testament commands of Genesis 128. Go, be fruitful, multiply. We see here in chapter 47, it's starting to happen among God's people, right? God's people are always, even the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're always a little example of the way things are supposed to be. We're not perfect, but it begins to happen. And that's what we see happening here. They begin to be fruitful. They begin to multiply. They begin to collect more stuff. Look at verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. That's a nice kind of completion concept, right? Because he had 17 years with Joseph before Joseph was taken away from him. And then now he has 17 years at the end of his life back again with Joseph. So it's a a beautiful kind of bookend. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. Um, And I, I said this last week, I'll say it again. If you want to talk about how do people live to be that old in the Old Testament, My simple answer is I don't know, but I'd be glad to talk about that more if you want to talk about it later. Verse 29 says, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Now, I just want to point out the obvious. That's awkward, okay? It's kind of weird. We don't really do that in our culture. We don't go around putting our hand under another man's thigh, okay? Um, and just to clarify, and just to make it more awkward than it already is, we do believe most commentaries, commentaries, commentators believe he is talking about his uh, 
his crotch, his private parts, okay? Um, and so we believe that this is, number one, it is weird. We don't do this. But number two, this is a solemn oath. So in their culture, it wasn't that weird. It was a big deal, right? It wasn't normal. This wasn't like everyday behavior, but this was a very important solemn oath sort of thing, right? You know, we already talked about how they would do covenants by cutting animals and walking through the blood. We don't do that either, okay? So this seems not as bad compared to that, I guess. So he's saying, put your hand under my thigh. Promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not marry me in Egypt. Do not bury me in Egypt. That's the big promise that he's asking Joseph to make. He goes on, verse 30. Let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt. Bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. So Joseph makes this promise to him in a weird ancient Middle Eastern way that we're not comfortable with, but he makes this solemn promise. Verse 31, and he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This word in Hebrew, head of his bed, staff of his bedpost, um, could also be translated uh, his staff for like walking and sojourning. That's what I, th- I think that's actually a better translation. He bowed on his staff because that's the way it's talked about in Hebrews as well. So we have this picture of him giving final burial instructions, right? Uh, I, this is probably too awkward to say raise your hands, but some of you have given burial instructions, right? Some of you have already made those plans. And I would say that's a very good idea. I have a picture here of a coffin at a graveside. As a pastor, I do a lot of funerals. And the purpose of a funeral, if you're a Christian, is to be a testimony to God's grace. That's the purpose of a funeral. We talk about really kind of dual purposes. It's to celebrate the life of the person, to honor them, but even more than that, to celebrate God. Matthew 5.16 says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they'd see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So every time I do a funeral for a believer, I say, let's look at their life and remember how that shows us that God is good, right? We're looking at their good deeds and we're praising their Father in heaven. So a funeral, graveside instruction should always be about honoring God and passing on the grace that you've been given. So I want to challenge you with that. Have you thought about that? Right? Again, those of you in your 20s, you're like, ah, I'm never going to die. I don't need to think about that. Um, but it's time to start thinking about that. And even if you're not down to the detail of planning out your funeral or telling your spouse or your family members your favorite hymn, right? you may not be down to that level of detail. You do want to start living your life as if your days count and making the most of them, right? You want to start living your life as if you're not going to live forever and you need to make the most of the time that God has given you. What are you doing to pass on the grace that's been given to you? 1 Thessalonians 4 says in context of death, it's right and good that Christians grieve when someone dies, but they don't grieve like the world does without hope. We should grieve with hope because we have hope in the grace of God. We have hope that God is a God who resurrects. And so if you have faith in Christ... Even your burial, even your graveside service should reflect that God is good and you believe in his grace and his goodness. Have you, have you thought that through? Another application to this is we as a culture, I think, avoid death. We're scared of death, right? And I think we kind of have this broader, undefined uh, cult of youth, right? Where we're just obsessed with being young and in shape and uh, vital and strong and all that. And it, you know, it's great to be strong. I'm giving up on that more and more every day. But it's also something to be aware of that we're kind of afraid of death, right? We're kind of afraid of old age in our culture. And we need to not be so afraid of it. 
go to funerals, right? Go to burials, go to gravesides, support your friends and your brothers and sisters in this process. As a culture, we want to get better at honoring God in death, saying death is not the end. We do grieve, we are sad, but we don't grieve without hope. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us. So big application for this one is do you see as you face death and the reality of death that it's still your job to pass on the grace that you've been given? God has shown himself to be gracious to you. You want to show that to the world and to others in your life. Proverbs 13.22 says it this way, A good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Now, of course, that's originally written in Proverbs. It has a, a physical focus, right? A physical treasure, physical inheritance. It's a good and wise and, and beautiful thing to have stuff to pass on to the next generation. But if you do a word search on inheritance throughout the New Testament, the New Testament transforms that word, right? Our inheritance is Christ himself. And so do I think it's a good idea for you to pass on some stuff to your kids? Yeah, that's great. Proverbs affirms that. But what's even more important is that you pass on the hope that you have in Jesus. Have you passed that on? Have you shared that grace with the next generation and with those around you? And that brings us to the next point here. Grace in your story. So Jacob's going to model for us sharing his own story. He's going to share his, sometimes in Christian culture, we call this your testimony, right? It's kind of like you're in court and you're testifying. You're saying, God appeared to me in the gospel, in the good news of who Jesus is. God showed up. So let's look at Jacob's story. So back to chapter 48, we're going to see Jacob sharing grace in his story. Chapter 48, verse 1, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of people and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. See that repetition? So we just saw... God's people were being fruitful and multiplying. And we talked last week about how that was hinted at because that was the original instructions of humanity, right? Like our job is to glorify God, to be fruitful, to multiply, to grow, to, the way I like to say it is to spread Eden, to spread paradise. That's what we are built for. And sin came in and broke that. And we failed and we failed and we failed. And that's a lot of the story of Genesis is the failure of humanity because of our own sin and selfishness and rebellion from God. We're not being fruitful. We're not glorifying God. We're not doing what we're supposed to do. And God comes in and says, hey, I'm going I'm to fix this. And he starts redeeming humanity through this family line. He says, I'm going to bless the whole world through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so we see this fruitful and multiply phrase come back in. And Jacob says, yeah, he appeared even to me. God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. He blessed me. He said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So here we understand a little better why Jacob didn't want to be buried in Egypt, right? So we're connecting the dots here. Oh, that's the symbolism of don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in the land of my fathers. Why? Because I trust in God's grace, because he appeared to me and said, we're going to give your people this land. So that's why his graveside instructions are a command to say, I believe in hope. I believe in the promises of God. Here he's saying, yeah, this is what God told me. He's going to give my people this land. 
So now it's, it's starting to come together. God has made these promises. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will make these things take place in your life that you're not doing a, a very good job of, of doing on your own, right? God's grace is going to come along and, and help you to be who you can't be by your own strength. And that's the kind of grace that's been revealed to Jacob in this story. Now, it's interesting. He kind of goes on and rambles a little bit here. Um, and this will come back around at the end, but let's go ahead and read this part. Verse 5, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Now he's kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen later. The blessing is going to be given to his grandsons. So again, this is kind of the legal side of it, and we'll, we'll push that off and talk about that later. But he's saying, basically, I'm adopting your sons, and I'm going to give a blessing to them in your name, right? So this is kind of like final will and testimony type stuff. He's making a declaration of your kids are going to inherit this land and there's going to be a tribe named after Ephraim and Manasseh later on. Now he digresses even more. Um, Look at verse six. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. So again, legal instructions. Then you have other children that are not Ephraim and Manasseh and they will serve under Ephraim and Manasseh, right? They'll be in that family line. So he's kind of giving like family chief tribal allotments is, is what's going to start taking place here. And he's going to go into more details with the blessing. Look at verse seven. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. So now this is an interesting little divergence, right? It kind of, on first blush, it just seems like an old man rambling, okay? That's kind of what it seems like. He's like, oh, and my wife died on the way on that trip. You know, you're like, what, Why is he, what is he talking about here? Um, now, particularly when God appeared to him, if you go back and read the story, when God appeared to him and said, I'm going to bless you, right after that, his wife died. And so really, it makes more sense. You're like, oh, he's recalling this sequence of events, And what I want you to see is as you learn to tell your story, it's going to be good and bad. Don't don't feel like you got to paint over the bad stuff. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes Christians make. We think, oh, I know Jesus now. He's forgiven me of my sin. Now I have to pretend that everything in my life is perfect. And if I ever tell anyone about Jesus, I can only tell them the good things, right? No, it's okay to be honest. We have this beautiful picture of Jacob on his deathbed telling a story of how God appeared to him. And he's like, oh yeah, and then my wife died. That was horrible, <laughs> right? Like, and I was a train wreck. And his life seems to kind of spiral out of control in some ways after that, right? It, his life is not a perfect life, but he's still testifying to God's grace. He's testifying to God's goodness. He's telling his story. God appeared to me. Bad things happened, good things happened. Are you willing to share your story? Are you willing to be real with people and say, yeah, this is who God is. This is the hope I have in Christ. No, it hasn't magically fixed everything. No, I still have problems, but God has appeared to me. Now, there's another problem with this, right? Because you're thinking, well, Dave, uh, God didn't appear to me in a weird vision in the desert, right? Like that's, that's probably what you're thinking, right? God has appeared to you if you've heard the good news of Jesus. Galatians 3.31 says it explicitly. It says, if you've heard the preaching of the gospel, if you've heard the proclamation of who Jesus is, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, proving that he has conquered death once and for all for you, then you have vividly seen 
a vision of God. He uses this Greek word, uh, it's translated usually like vividly portrayed. It's a, it's a word that can mean like sketched, drawn, painted, written. It's this idea that if you've heard the gospel of your ears, you've seen a vision of God. God has appeared to you. So my question to you is, have you heard the story of God's grace? Because if you've heard the story of God's goodness in the gospel, in Jesus living the life you couldn't live as a perfect man, dying a sacrificial death, taking your place, rising from the dead. If you've heard that story, God has appeared to you. And we need to start living like it, right? Like we need to start sharing it. God, God has appeared to me. The God of the universe has appeared to me. I don't live in this world waiting for God to talk to me. No, God has shown up. He's given me a vision. And you can share that story. When's the first time God appeared to you? When's the first time you heard the story of who Jesus is and who God is through Christ? It's Galatians 3.1, if you're looking up. I said 3.31. I saw some people looking down their Bibles. It's Galatians 3.1, not 3.31. It says, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed to you as crucified. The gospel is preached to you before your very eyes. He's been publicly portrayed to you. You've seen him. He's shown up. Now are you going to share that with others? Are you going to tell your story. Now, a common way we do this is just reading the story, right? You can read the Bible. If you're a dad, read the Bible to your kids. Here's a picture of of a dad uh, reading bedtime stories with his kids. There's some really interesting statistics. Uh, Men, I want to pick on you a little bit. Um, I know it's not always this happy, right? Like sometimes you're like, sit still, be quiet. Um, (laughs) These are models. It's not really like this in real life. They're beautiful and everything's perfect and the lighting is just right. But even though it's not always perfect and beautiful, it doesn't always make a, a wonderful photograph, be consistent. Share the story. Read the Bible to each other, to your kids. There's some really incredible statistics about how like if a man follows Christ, there's way greater statistical occurrence of his family following Christ. It's really amazing. Of course, all of us need to do this. All of us need to tell our story. But I just want to say, men, wake up, okay? All the men in the audience, why don't you look at me for just a second? For some reason, the the way the universe works, men are the most silent, and then when we speak up, it has the biggest effect. And so women, keep going. (laughs) Keep going. You're you're often much more faithful than the men are, but men wake up. You have this incredible opportunity to share the story of who God is, to impact the next generation. So say something. Do, Do your kids, does your spouse, do the people around you, do they know your story? How did you first meet God? How do you first begin to understand that God is a God of grace and not just a God of judgment? When did you first begin to see this vision of who God really is? Share that story with the people around you, and God will use that story to make an impact on the next generation. Okay, last point here. It's going to be a little bit longer Grace through the blessing. We're going to look at verses 8 through 22. So again, blessing is often a word we use to just say like, um, may God be nice to you, you know, bless your heart, God bless you when someone sneezes. But in the ancient Middle East, it also had a more formal um, kind of passing on of legal rights to the firstborn. That's part of what we see going on here. Um, And so starting in verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, There are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. 
So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and he embraced them. Now here's an interesting irony. Jacob's dad was also blind in his old age, right? It's a common thing. We, I'm wearing glasses right now, right? We lose our eyesight as we get older. And so there's this weird thing where Jacob deceived his father to get the blessing. And Isaac knew that God had promised that Jacob was going to give the blessing, but there's indications in the story that Isaac didn't want to give the blessing to Jacob, right? And so we see this dysfunction of people not living their lives in accordance with God's will, and there's intrigue and deception, and it's all messed up, right? All kinds of family dysfunction. But what's beautiful is we see a redeeming of that in the next generation, where now Jacob is living in line with God's will. And he is passing on the grace. There's not all the deception. It's more straightforward. It's more honest. And so just like his dad, he's blind, but he is now honestly communicating with Joseph as he passes on the blessing here. So he kissed him. He embraced him. Verse 11, Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. If you're a real black and white person, you're like, wait, he just said he was blind. And now he's saying, I see them, right? Like, so... His eyes are dim, he can see a little bit, but also there's this, this idiomatic way we talk about, you know, even blind people sometimes will say, hey, good to see you, you know. Um, it, it's like they're before his face. So I would say that's the simple meaning of like, I just, I didn't think I was going get, to get to be with y'all, right? So here he is, he's pulling him up close to, close to his face. Man, this is so great. I didn't even think I'd get to see you, Joseph. Now I get to see your kids. Verse 12, then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Again, this is kind of ancient Middle Eastern practice. Like think about in our context, we have a lot of legal procedures. You know, when you go to testify in court, you put a hand on a Bible, you stand in a certain place, the judge has a gavel. There are certain procedures here and this is what they're following. They're gonna place hands to extend the blessing. Joseph is bowing to show his uh, submission to the chieftain, to Jacob here. So all of this is, is like legal language. So he bows down, uh, verse 13, and then Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. So he's lining the kids up so that the older, who is the one that's supposed to get the blessing, is in line with Jacob, Israel's right hand, because that's the hand by which you confer the blessings of the firstborn. Um, And so blessings of the firstborn is, again, not something we necessarily do in our culture, but think in the ancient world, um, it was not as cash-based as it is today. And so there was always the oldest brother getting the family business. That's the simplest way to say it, right? Uh, Like, think about it today. Like, uh, if you had a family business, you might sell it and divide up the money and give it to all the kids equally, right? But in those days, it'd be like, well, the family business is uh, this horse and carriage, and we're not going to cut the horse into four pieces and then give it to the different kid, right? You're going to give the business to one person, and then the other brothers are going to work for that person who's the new boss of the family business. That is how they did it in the ancient world. And so this would be confirmed through the hands and lining them up with the right hand being the one that gets the blessing. And it says in verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. Okay, do you see what's happening? Joseph lines them up properly so that the oldest gets the blessing, and Jacob does this. (laughs) He switches, right? Crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph 
And he said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day. So still, still more of telling a story, right? Testifying to God's grace. God has shepherded me. He's cared for me. The angel who's redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so I grabbed a, there's a painting here to kind of show you the crossed hands. So in this painting, we've got Jacob uh, without the shirt on. Sorry about that. And he's crossing his arms. And then we've got Joseph in the blue and gold in this picture, grabbing his arms, right? Why is Joseph grabbing his arms? Because he, he thinks his, his old senile father is making a mistake, right? He's like, wait, you're crossing your arms. That's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to bless this one. This is the one that deserves the blessing, Right? That's the way it's supposed to work. This is how we do it in our culture. So verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. That's a soft translation. He was really upset. He was really upset. It displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know he also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And Jacob's like, I I know what I'm doing. (laughs) I know what I'm doing. He's, He's not being unblessed, right? I'm not damning the older one here. I'm just giving the blessing to the younger one. He's gonna be the greater one. I, I know what I'm doing. This is how God works repeatedly throughout the Bible. This is a theme again and again. God blesses in surprising ways. The one who seems to deserve it is not blessed, and the one who doesn't seem to deserve it is blessed. God does this again and again to show that it's not by the strength of man, but it's by God who blesses. He's the source of blessing. So God is always turning upside down how we think it's supposed to work. So he says, Verse 20, he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce, pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Um, so this becomes a, a byword, a saying, a proverb in Israel. Like, may God bless you like Ephraim and Manasseh, right? They get the double blessing. They get this great blessing, God's grace. It's like a way of saying God's grace to you. May God treat you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your father. So he's reminding him, we got this 400-year detour in Egypt, but God's going to bring us back. God is faithful. Remember, bury me in the right place, because we know God's going to keep his promises. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. It's kind of a little play on words there right at the end. It's the city of Shechem is what we believe, but the word Shechem can also mean portion. So basically, it's just another cherry on top. He's like, and I got an extra portion for you, right? There's extra blessings that are being given to you. Extra blessings being given to you. Why do you think Joseph was so upset about Jacob blessing the wrong kid? Here's my thought on that. Uh, I can't prove this. I got no Bible verse for this, but this is the way we work. This is like a based on human beings and how we function. I think Joseph, in doing the right thing and in being the good son with all these other terrible sons, started to think he deserved the blessing, right? And I think this happens to us as well. We come to Christ and we realize, I deserve judgment, right? 
Every relationship with God starts with the recognition that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. That's the only way to come to him. I'm a sinner that deserves judgment, but God has given me grace. But then you know what happens? Then we kind of clean up our life a little bit. We start trusting God. We start living in new ways. Maybe we put away some addictions. We start getting our life in order. We start following biblical principles. We see some natural blessings result from that. There's real blessing in obedience. And then we start to think, I did this, right? And I think just like that can happen to you and me, it could happen to Joseph. Joseph's like, no, 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 no. This is not the, this is, I, like I earned this blessing for my kids. I, I, I suffered and I was obedient and God was with me and I did the right thing and, and I don't want to give the wrong blessing to the wrong person. God's always upending that way of doing things. He's always saying, no, I, I decide who gets blessings. I decide who gets grace. Now, this doctrine throughout the Bible is called the doctrine of election, the doctrine of choosing. Sometimes it's called predestination. And it is, man, it's something that Christians like to argue about, right? Like, it's just like, everybody freaks out. We go philosophical, like, well, does it mean this and does it mean that? Here's what I want to focus you on. When God talks about God's, or when the scriptures talk about God's choosing and his election in like Romans chapter 9 and Ephesians chapter 1, what he's saying there is if you're proud and you think you chose yourself and you're that awesome, God's going to humble you. And if you're an outsider and you are filled with shame and you think there is no way that God could love me, he says to people like you, I chose you. I came to the orphanage and I picked you out. I loved you before there was anything good you could do. That's, that's what that doctrine is about. We make it into a philosophy. It's not meant to be a philosophy. It's meant to be about an adopting, grace-giving God who loves us. So when we point to God, we say, the blessings are from God. They're not because of what I've done. God is the blesser, Right? And this then should translate into how we live our lives with the kind of humility of like, man, every good gift I've been given, it, come, it came from God. It didn't come from me. So one of the places where in the New Testament where blessing is talked about very strongly and repeatedly is in Ephesians chapter 1, where it also talks about God's choosing. And again, I think the most important way for us to understand that as the people of God is God's adopting love. God loved you. Are you going to believe that? Are you going to keep defaulting to, well, I don't know if just God can love me by grace. I think I have to do something good to earn his love, right? This giving of the blessing to the wrong, you see my quotes, to the wrong person is God saying, he's the blesser. He gives the good gifts. And that, that doesn't mean like, don't let your mind go down those crazy thought trails of like, oh, does that mean if I come to God and I really want him, but I'm not chosen, then he's going to say, nope, you're damned. I hate you, right? Like, no, that's not how it works. If you love him, he will bless you. If you come to him with the open hands of faith of, I can't do anything. I need you. He says, that's, that's the heart that I love. That's the heart that I bless. So in Ephesians 1, where he's talking about all this crazy stuff of, of blessings and predestination, all this stuff, in Ephesians 1, he clarifies it really well in Ephesians 1.13. Paul says this, you were sealed we just sang about this, right? Our, seal our hearts. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, right? So we can, our minds can start to explode. We've got like eternity past and God's predestination, all these big philosophical ideas. He's like, focus, focus, right? 
When did you hear the message? Here's the message. You're a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Do you believe? Do you believe? He's saying, pay attention. The Holy Spirit seals you in that moment of belief. When you hear the word, he is with you. He is blessing you. He is showing his grace to you. So trust him. Trust him with the open hands of faith, not the, look at what I've done. I've done all these things. I deserve more. No, come to him with the empty hands of faith. I deserve judgment, but I believe that you're a God of grace. I believe that you're a God that blesses because you're gracious, not because I'm so wonderful and I am so awesome. So then Ephesians goes on and says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Why is it by grace? So you can't boast in yourself. You can only boast in Jesus. It says, for we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So repeatedly, God's going to work in a way differently than we expect, right? But in this story and in our own lives, he's showing us that he's a God who gives grace. We want to keep defaulting back to a system of earning it on our own. He says, no, I give grace because I'm a God of love. I'm a God of grace. And I love you not because you've lived a perfect life, but because I'm good and because I've chosen you to show my glory and grace to the world. Deuteronomy 7, 7, he says this to Israel. I didn't choose you because you were a great, powerful tribe. I chose you because you were puny and weak. And that way I could be sure to show my grace and my glory to the world. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to trust yourself? Are you going to receive the grace that he has for you? And if you receive that grace, are you going to then pass it on to others? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have transformed us through the preaching of the gospel by appearing to us in the story of a Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, of a Jesus who rose from the dead, of a God who has chased after us in love. We thank you for that. Help us to receive your grace. Help us to pass on your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.